Can God save me from my sin? Ask yourself that question. Now, there are assumptions to that question. Uh, God is assumed. Salvation is assumed. Sin is assumed. Some people don't believe in God. Others take issue with sin and salvation. Others don't believe they need to be saved by God. Some believe God saves everybody. Still others believe that God absolutely could save them. But because of the greatness of their sin, they have a hard time believing that God would save them. So, so people hear this question differently. Regardless, uh, this is a relevant question for everyone, whether they realize it or not. Can God save you and me from our sin? Well, God gives us an answer in His Word, in Holy Scripture, and that's where we need to go for the answers. Now, most people don't believe that the Bible is God's absolute and authoritative truth and self-revelation, but Christians do for many reasons, many good reasons, not the least of which are fulfilled prophecy, eyewitness testimony, internal correspondence and coherence, logical consistency, empirical adequacy, and experiential relevance, to name just a few reasons. My purpose is not to defend the Bible this morning against attack, but rather to show you from the Bible that God is a great Savior who can save even you and me from our utter sinfulness. If you're not a Christian, my desire is that God would open your heart and mind to receive this truth this morning and create faith in you. And that you would be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, my desire for you is similar, that God would create stronger faith and assurance in you in God, your Savior. And that God would increase your gratitude for his saving work through Christ. Now, I've tried to be a little creative here with this sermon. We like the Heidelberg Catechism here, and I've structured this sermon in question and answer format. Uh, my son, Jeremiah, he named this the Red Rose Catechism. So that's what you're going to get. This is the Red Rose Catechism. It's a short catechism um, that's aimed at one primary point, that God is a great Savior, and he can save you from your sin. That's where I'm headed. Some parts of this sermon are theological, uh, theologically controversial, and so please listen carefully and think biblically and discern everything that I say. You should be doing that every Sunday, but please listen carefully and discern according to Scripture. Here's question one of the Red Rose Catechism. Question number one. What do Christians toil and strive for in this life? And the answer is, because of its eternal value and promise, Christians toil and strive for godliness more than anything else. In verse 7, Paul told Pastor Timothy, rather train yourself for godliness. In verse 8, he added, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul and Timothy toiled and strived for godliness in order to gain uh, its earthly and eternal value and promise. They worked to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ so that God would save people and make them godly too. And it was worth it for Paul and Timothy. Think about this for a moment. What do most people... Toil and strive for in this life. 
Well, I would say it's things like personal comfort, uh, wealth, material possessions, health, family, power, intelligence, influence, fame. But all of those things are momentary. Most people work their entire life to attain what they will lose at the end of their life, if not before, and they head into... um, into eternity spiritually impoverished because they failed to pursue godliness which had eternal worth and value. Christians toil and strive for godliness which has value now and forever. When Christians deny illicit pleasures now, they are not denying pleasure itself but rather denying lesser pleasures in order to gain the greater pleasures of godliness. Christians toil and strive for greater, lasting things. Question number two. Why do Christians toil and strive for godliness instead of the pleasures of this life? The answer, the pleasures of this life are momentary and passing away, yet the living God is forever. And he promises eternal pleasures in himself. Therefore, Christians set their hope on the living God. The pleasures of this life are momentary. My friends, they are passing away. Uncomfortable things come. The stock market crashes and wealth is lost. Material possessions burn. Health declines with one diagnosis. Unresolved conflict destroys families. Power changes hands. An accident damages the brain. One mistake reduces influence. Fame is is gone when the next big act comes along. Now, it may not be easy to admit, but we know that it's true. Earthly pleasures don't last. They don't last. Hebrews 11, 24, and 25 talk about the fleeting pleasures of sin. 1 John 2, 17 gives it straight. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We are watching in front of our eyes the world passing away along with its pleasures, and yet it is so easy for us to prioritize fleeting pleasures over godliness, even when God promises eternal life to those who do his will. I like how scholar Colin Cruz put it. He said, quote, all that is antithetical to God and his grace is passing away. It is doomed. There is no future in worldliness, end of quote. And he's right. And partly, this is partly, why Christians prioritize godliness. Paul said, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God. Like Paul and Timothy, the reason why Christians toil and strive for godliness is because they have their hopes set on a God who is alive. A living God makes the struggle for godliness worth it. He makes it worth it. One farmer stood by his dead apple tree. Another farmer stood by his alive apple tree. Which farmer should hope to enjoy delicious apples from his tree? Hope in the living God empowers godliness. 
The living God is alive and he is graciously working in Christians, bringing them to himself so he can be their gain, so he can be their treasure and pleasure forever when this life is finished. Jesus Christ displays for us the superiority of God, allowing us to confidently hope in a living God. Question number three, how do we know that God is living? Answer, first, because God shows us in creation. Second, because God shows us in Holy Scripture. Third, because God shows us in His precious Son, Jesus Christ. Fourth, there would be no meaning in life if God were dead. First, creation shows us that God is living. Living things get their life from a living God. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Romans 1.19 and 20 add this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Second, Scripture shows us that God is living. Scripture refers to God as the living God at least 28 times. Jeremiah 10.10 says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. The God of the Bible is a living God. Third, Jesus Christ shows us that God is living. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Eternal living God took on living human flesh. When Jesus was on earth, He said to His disciple Philip in John 14.9, Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. A living man has shown us the living God, that is Jesus Christ. Fourth, life has no meaning if God is dead. German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche wrote that God is dead. You may be aware of his famous quote, an idea in and of itself that has grave consequences. And Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias said, quote, having killed God, the atheist is left with no reason for being, no morality to espouse, no meaning to life, and no hope beyond the grave, end of quote. Bertrand Russell is arguably one of the most famous atheists of all time. Listen to his assessment of human life. And I want you to listen in a way that can you see any meaning in his assessment of life, any ultimate meaning. This is what Russell wrote. That man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion 
All the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. If God is dead... Or if he is a figment of our imagination, then morality and meaning are delusions. A living God is the only rational explanation of morality and meaning in life. Without a living God, there is no meaning. Every living human being has value and meaning because they bear the image of a living God. Life is sacred because it is created by a living God. We live because he lives. Creation shows us God is living. Scripture shows us that God is living. Jesus Christ shows us that God is living. And our intrinsic worth and meaning as human beings show us that God is living. Now, I'm making a case that God is a great Savior, and He can save you from your sins, and I'm still building. Question number four, who is this living God, and what can He do? Answer, the living God is the one and only true and holy God, in which exist three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who work together to save sinners from their sin, guilt, and And misery. Scripture is clear, God is one, and yet Scripture is also clear that there are three distinct but equal persons in the one God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. God is holy, and each person of the the Trinity is holy. The Father is holy, the Son is holy, the Spirit is holy. And therefore, the seraphim of Isaiah 6.3 in the heavenly scene state emphatically, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The living God is hallowed. Sacred, pure, uncorrupted, unstained, unblemished, and perfectly virtuous. All of his ways are holy because he is holy. Paul and Timothy had set their hope on that living God. But Paul added something that deserves more explanation. Paul said that this living God is the Savior of all people. Now what does that mean? What does that mean? And I'm going to try to break it down for you. Savior is the Greek word soter, which refers to someone who rescues or delivers or saves another. In the New Testament, soter only ever refers to God or Jesus Christ. Here in verse 10, soter relates to salvation from sin. We know that because in in chapter 1, Paul talked about Christ Jesus coming into the world to do what? To save sinners of whom he was the foremost. In chapter 2, Paul talked more about God as Savior and Christ Jesus as mediator and ransom. So with that in mind, 
God has revealed himself in Scripture as an actual and effective Savior. His saving acts are not potential. They are actual and achieve all that he intends. God's sovereignty secures this very truth. Listen to what God promises to do for his people. This is a promise. A promise. Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There is absolutely no question that God will do this all for his chosen people. Later in Ezekiel 37 verse 23, God says, I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. God is never, ever unsure about his saving work, whether it's going to work or not. He will do what he wills. It will happen. He will achieve it. His actual saving makes him an actual savior. In Matthew 1.21, the son born to the Virgin Mary would be named Jesus precisely because he will save his people from their sins. The, the, the living God is not simply able to save He is not merely a possible or a probable or a likely or a hypothetical or a conceivable Savior. He is a real, authentic, and actual Savior because he saves his people from their sins. Now, maybe this illustration will help you uh, get this. A swimmer is drowning in the ocean, but the lifeguard isn't there because he is having a corn dog or popcorn or something on the boardwalk with his girlfriend, and so the swimmer drowns. Now, was the lifeguard capable of saving that swimmer? Yes. Is the lifeguard a savior? No, because no actual rescue occurred. A swimmer is drowning in the ocean, but for some reason, the lifeguard just stands there and watches the person drown. Is that lifeguard a savior? No. The swimmer ultimately drowned. A swimmer is drowning in the ocean, and the lifeguard courageously tries to to rescue the, the swimmer, but fails in their attempt, and the person drowns. Is that lifeguard a savior? No. Brave, heroic, noble, absolutely, but not a savior. No rescue occurred. The morning paper will print that that lifeguard was a savior and that lifeguard was a rescuer when that lifeguard prevents the swimmer from drowning and brings them safely to shore. So don't read too much into the analogy. All of them fall short. Here's the point I'm trying to make. To be rightly called a savior assumes the act of saving and not simply the potential of saving. That's my point. If you agree with that premise, It will influence how you're going to interpret verse 10. How you're going to interpret the phrase, the living God who is the Savior of all people. 
So for now, understand that for God to reveal himself as Savior and to promise us in Scripture that he will indeed save his people, it means the living God actually and fully saves those he chooses to save. What does God save people from? God saves people from their sin, guilt, and misery, from the penalty and the power of sin. Genesis 1 through 3 explains this. In the garden, humanity broke God's good law, and in doing so, they subjected themselves to death. Death, in our lives, in our experience, it's a constant reminder of our sin, guilt, and misery, and the penalty and the power of sin. Folks, we were all in Adam when he sinned. His sin is our sin. His guilt is our guilt. His death is our death. Romans 5.12 says it right. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. All sinned. You sinned against God. I sinned against God. Our children sinned against God. Our grandchildren sinned against God. Our great-grandchildren sinned against God. Everyone has sinned against God. I've met countless people who have no interest in God saving them. No interest. And yet, I have not met a person yet in, in my life that claims to be perfect. Did everything right, never made a mistake, never did something wrong. How peculiar. The human heart has an astonishing ability to self-justify and ignore the reality of sin, guilt, and misery. Listen to how Paul explained this in Romans 3, 9 through 12. He left no doubt, by the way, and our personal experience only confirms this. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. To say that God is Savior is to assume that he will save people who need to be saved. Who need to be saved. And it is a terrifying thought to think that we could be in need of saving but not have a Savior. To come and rescue, only left to languish in our sin and guilt and misery, inching every day toward the eternal and unrelenting judgment of the living and holy God. In Romans 2, verse 5, Paul said with sobering clarity, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So let me clarify. It is the people who refuse to see their need of God as Savior, who fail to turn from sin to a great Savior in faith, who are storing up wrath for themselves, and God's righteous judgment is coming for them. God is not a Savior for people who willingly perish in their love affair with sin. What does God save people from? Sin which kills Guilt which condemns and misery which torments. Who can rescue us from our sin, guilt, and misery? Well, before 
you can enjoy the answer to the question, can God save me from my sin? Before you can ever get to enjoying the fullness of that answer, like Paul, you must cry out from the deepest part of your being, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Can you sense the urgency in Paul? I'm wretched. Who is going to come to me and rescue me from this sin and guilt and misery? God is kind to show you your sin, guilt, and misery. And then to offer himself as the Savior in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each of the three persons of the one God work together in perfect harmony to rescue sinners and give them eternal life. God the Father, before the foundation of the world, sovereignly planned and purposed the salvation of his chosen people. God the Son came into the world to live a perfect life of righteousness, die as a substitute and wrath-absorbing sacrifice, ransom, raise from the dead, ascend to intercede, for all of God's chosen people. The Father accomplishes salvation through the Son He sent to achieve it. God the Father and God the Son send God the Holy Spirit to regenerate God's chosen people, gift them with repentance and faith and apply all the benefits of the glorious salvation to them for their eternal good including their liberation from the penalty of sin and their liberation from the power of sin, guilt, and misery. The living God is Savior because He saves and He secures His people. Who can save us from our sin, guilt, and misery? The living God who alone is a great Savior. This brings me to the last of the Red Rose Catechism questions. Question number five, who does God save? The answer is, God saves people from every tribe, language, people group, and nation. He saves everyone who believes. Here's where it gets a bit more complicated, so please hang with me, hang tough here. What does Paul mean when he says that the living God is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe? That's a controversial phrase. You bring that up at a Christian dinner party, mm-hmm, that's what I'm talking about. It's going to get some blood moving. So, some scholars interpret the word Savior differently than what I have in this sermon. Okay, they understand verse 10 to say that God is a general or generic Savior of everyone in the sense that God is kind to everyone, in the sense that God gives common grace to everyone, so he saves them in that sense, but then God is only the Savior in the complete form, in the salvific form of everyone who believes, of those who believe. Now, that's possible uh, because of the range of the word Savior that can be used as deliverer and not necessarily just in a salvation sense. But the context of chapter 1 and 2 and the use of Savior in the New Testament seem to refute this less common use of the term Savior here in verse 10. If Savior means actual Savior, as I have argued that it does, then what does all people mean? Okay, let me, let me mention four possibilities. Number one, 
If all people means every single person that ever lived, the conclusion would have to be that God saves everyone. And that view is called universalism. And that is a wicked, false doctrine that Scripture patently rejects. Okay, so Paul cannot mean all people in a universal sense. Number two, 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, with that in mind, some understand verse 10 to say that God wants all people to be saved. Okay, William Hendrickson stated the problem with that. He said, quote, The present passage, however, does not say that he wants to save, but that he actually saves. He is actually the Savior, in some sense, of all men. Hendrickson is right. Additionally, that interpretation would suggest that God's sovereign and decretive will can be thwarted in some sense, and it cannot be. They cannot be. Doesn't seem, doesn't seem to be accurate. Number three, other people believe, as Hendrickson notes, that the living God is able to save all men, but though all can be saved, only the believers are actually saved. Now, many people believe this. But again, that's not what the verse says. Verse 10 does not say God is a potential or possible Savior. It says the exact opposite. He is the Savior. A possible Savior view would also mean that God has not actually saved anyone, but has only made salvation possible if people choose Him. But that would make human beings the definitive factor in their own salvation and not God's Sovereign will and grace, and that's a colossal problem, biblically, theologically, and that makes that view unsound. So I'd like to suggest a fourth possibility. Uh, it's not a perfect one. I understand that. I won't get into, into it too deeply here, but I think this one fits the context and is biblically consistent. Think back to chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I preached on these verses in August and September, so it would help to pull uh, what you learned there into the sermon here. Um, one of the benefits of preaching through books, you can draw on past things that you've learned and get better context of, of these passages. So let me summarize that, because most of you are probably like, I have no idea. I can't remember what I ate yesterday. So here we go. In verse 1, Paul says to pray, if you remember, for all people. And in verse 2, he mentioned kings and all who are in high positions. So all people is best understood as all kinds or types of people, as Paul illustrates. So Paul was not telling the Ephesians to pray for every single person that ever lived throughout history. That, that, that's not what his point was. In verse 4, uh, the meaning of all people continues. God desires all kinds and types of people to be saved. And all in verse 6 follows suit. Christ gave himself as an actual and effective ransom for all kinds and types of people. Male, female, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor. You could just keep going. All without distinction. And if you remember back, part of my argument in that, in that sermon was that Jesus Christ actually achieved all that God sent him to achieve. It was not a possible ransom. It was an actual and effective ransom. He ransomed people. He was not simply a potential or possible ransom. He achieved the freedom that he set out to achieve. So verse 10 then builds on Paul's meaning back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. That's where I'm getting this. 
Paul meant God is the Savior of all people without distinction or people from every tribe, language, people group, and nation, interestingly, as Revelation 5.9 confirms so clearly. Okay, that is entirely appropriate to the context, entirely appropriate to the grammar, and entirely appropriate to biblical theology. Now, if this interpretation is correct, what do we do with the last phrase, especially of those who believe? Because what it seems like Paul is doing there is differentiating between one broad or generic group of people and then one more specific group of people on the believers. So what do we do? So now we have to zero in on the Greek word malista or especially. In the New Testament, this word typically means to the greatest degree or most of all. But the word has a broader meaning. Hang with me here. The Reformation Study Bible notes this. The Greek word translated especially may also be translated that is to say, as can be elsewhere in Paul's letters. Now, other scholars agree with this. Now, hang with me here. Anthony Hansen wrote that Paul, quote, is not saying that God saves believers more than he saves others. He is simply modifying his general statement that God is the Savior of all men by adding the limitation that you cannot be saved unless you believe. Dr. Philip Ryken weighed in. He said this, The word especially does not mean there are two kinds of salvation, general and specific. Recent scholarship demonstrates that the word especially, melista, Uh, Melista means to be precise or in other words. Thus, the verse should read as follows. God is the savior of all men. That is to say he is the savior of those who believe. Does God save everyone? The scripture absolutely very clearly says no, he does not. And there is mystery to that. There is tension to that. Take it up with God, not with me. All right, he made it this way, but Scripture does tell us we have to look at what what we have in Scripture, and it tells us actually very plainly in Scripture that as the Savior, the living God does save Jew and Gentile alike. They make the Scripture makes that point. He saves people from every tribe. He saves people from every language. He saves people from every people group and nation. And that salvation is given by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And we find that in Scripture alone. So our interpretation of verse 10 must be consistent with all that. Now, you may interpret verse 10 differently. You may be completely lost at what I just said. I'd love to help you work through that, to gather it, maybe listen to it a few more times. But the view that I, give, that I gave you here, I believe, is most consistent with other biblical doctrines that you're going to find in Scripture, like predestination, election, effectual calling, regeneration, and repentance and faith as gifts from God. I believe limited atonement is biblical. And I hope that you delight in the truth that God is a great Savior. God is an actual Savior. God actually does what he sets out to do. And that he completely saves everyone who by his sovereign grace believes. Believes. 
Now, if you haven't admitted your sin, guilt, and misery, and haven't placed your faith in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ in order to receive eternal life and joy in him, would you do that today? I plead with you to do that today. Do not leave here without knowing the great Savior that is offered you in Jesus Christ and the gospel. Would you turn from your sin, which is killing you, is robbing you of great pleasures in God, and would you trust in Jesus Christ in this life and forever? Don't leave here without trusting in your great Savior. Now, most of you, you've done that. You have put your faith in Jesus Christ. You have trusted in him. He is precious to you. Most of you have done that. So here's what it is for you. Remember that you have a great Savior, a great Savior, and that he continues to save you. See, you are saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. You have a great Savior who is saving you as we speak. Because Christ bought you with his precious blood. He wants you. You are his possession. And he will preserve you. He will protect you. He will make sure you make it. The great Savior that we offer to believers to say, or unbelievers, we say, please look to Jesus. See what he can do for you. See how awesome he is. See how he rescues us from our sin and guilt and misery. That Savior that we offer is the Savior that is working in you to get you there so that you finish. He ensures your salvation because His grace is sure. Oh, we have a great Savior. The living God and Savior, He saved John Newton from his sin, guilt, and misery. Many of you probably know the story of John Newton. He was a slave trader, and, he, and God just flat out gripped him with the gospel and, and transformed his life. He wrote the amazing hymn, Amazing Grace, and he knew that the living God was his savior. And John Newton said this, and I'm guessing that when he said this or wrote this or whatever the context was, I'm guessing it was near the end of his life. And I'm wondering how many of us now, we feel so close to eternity. So close. There's been, there's been some painful stuff in this church, life-threatening things. Uh, you can be a child and you can be the oldest person here, and you know that death is close. So imagine this man, I guess, in the late stages of his life because it talks about his memory failing. So I'm guessing, although my memory fails all the time, so... What's that saying? But this is what John Newton said. He said, Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Do you know how great your sin, guilt, and misery are? Do you know? It's no small thing. That compare game that we can do, hey, look at that. It's so much worse than me. Oh, don't do that. No, your, your little righteous life that you think that you lived, man, you are in utter need of Jesus Christ. 
because your sin, guilt, and misery is off the charts. You, you, you can't measure it. And I hope that you recognize that. But I also hope that you know how great a Savior God is. The living God. And I hope that you receive God's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, so that you can enjoy freedom from sin, guilt, and misery. Freedom. I do not bear it because my Christ has. It's not on you. You don't carry that load anymore. You are free in the fullest sense of the term. And you are free from the slavery of sin. And you are free from the power of sin over your life. You can do great things because God is at work in you. Your great Savior will help you toil and strive for godliness which glorifies Him. He is just shining His grace in you. When you put your hope and trust in the living God as Savior, you no longer need to suffer under your sin, guilt, and misery. That's not yours to suffer because it's been suffered for. So you enjoy the freedom that is rightfully yours in Christ. You live free. You you are free, dear brother. You are free, dear sister, to live in a way that pleases the living God because of who you have been made to be in Christ. That's the gospel. Would you believe it? Let's pray. Father, thank you that your son is so precious to us to come and rescue us from the clutches of sin and guilt and misery. We need you, God. We need you so much. And perhaps there are people here who are like, I'm really not, I really don't have that that great of a need. I'm actually a pretty good person. I pray that you break them of their pride and wickedness and reveal to them the greatness of the Savior who can rescue even them. And that they would not be depressed or despair in their sin, guilt, and misery, but they would run to Christ who can free them and liberate them and take their burden and that they would walk in utter freedom and joy knowing that they have a great Savior. And God, I pray for all those who have placed their faith in you perhaps many, many years ago that you would remind them of how great a Savior you are. And that you would fuel their gratitude. That they would see the greatness of your saving work in Christ alone. And they would say, thank you, God, for saving me. I pray that they would be ever reminded of two great realities. How great a sinner they were. Because they are a saint saved by Almighty God. And how great a Savior you are. And yes, in our struggle with sin, guilt, and misery, even so, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we get so discouraged by that. Help us to look to Jesus in, uh, in our struggle and to say, I have a great Savior and he can save even me. Thank you, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.